Hello, everyone, and welcome back to EpiCentral. I'm your host, Maddie Lewis, infectious disease epidemiologist. And in today's episode, we're going to do a question and answers a Q&A about epidemiology. But before we get started, I'm going to do a segment called No One Asked But, where I give my unsolicited commentary and opinions, but this time I'm just going to kind of catch up and talk about something that I find interesting. Okay, for the next seven-ish minutes, I'm going to be talking about disordered eating, um, under-eating, and those types of topics, so just skip about eight minutes, maybe nine to be careful if you don't want to hear about that. Or if you just don't care and want to hear about epidemiology, skip ahead. So basically, something I've been dealing with in my personal life, and this has happened a couple times before, but I have this bad habit as of the last year or two where I will abandon my body by under eating and under fueling. After like a week or so of not eating enough, I still eat, I just don't eat enough because honestly, I hate the word laziness, but I honestly am just lazy. And then I, it's that and like I didn't buy the types of groceries that I actually wanted to eat. And then I don't like to spend that much eating out, especially on like quick and fast things for convenience. I like to put my money when it comes to like eating out with like friends or if I'm really craving like really good food. So yeah, this has happened like at least three times in the last year, which is not good. I don't know why, like, I don't know. You know, when you become adult, you have to kind of adjust and sometimes you just don't do the dishes for three days. Sometimes you just don't eat enough food and it's not good. And I really, really recommend not doing that. None of this is medical advice, but just general health education for everyone. Underfueling your body is really bad for so many reasons. And one of the things that can happen, which has happened with me, is if you undereat for a while, then after you're after you actually start fueling your body again, then your your hunger gets out of control and then you have to eat an absolute insane amount of food in order to get full if you even do get full and then it takes like for me it takes a couple days to restore my fullness cues uh, because I kind of just don't get full or it just takes forever and it's really uncomfortable and really annoying. Definitely talk to your doctor or even better a dietitian to learn more about the harms of under eating. And actually fun fact, I don't believe in diets. Um, I'll, I say that with the caveat that like I do have thin privilege, like I've never been overweight or obese And also, I've luckily never struggled, I've never dieted, I've never struggled with uh, disordered eating or anything like that. So of course, it's kind of easy for me to say, but just on like the intellectual level, I don't believe in dieting personally. I want people to know that dieting is not something that anybody ever has to do in order to reach their health goals. You will find physicians and dietitians and nutrition experts who are also anti-diet. There is like an anti-diet, health at every size type community online. So if you're interested in just learning and exploring that topic, you should definitely check it out. Again, not health advice. I'm just letting you know that that information is out there. And if you want to implement something in your life, I would definitely work with healthcare providers and experts and ones that are familiar with your individual medical history. Anyway, I want to talk about, for the next couple minutes, I want to talk about this YouTuber called Stephanie Buttermore. So she was, I think, like a fitness model and her 
physique was really important for her job, whatever she was doing. And in 2019, she decided she was fed up with the chronic dieting and her never-ending hunger that she could never satisfy. And she just wanted to be healthy because at that point she was, I don't know if she was underweight, but she was definitely an unhealthy level of thinness. She did not have enough body fat. She, I think she lost her period at some point, which is not good. And so under the care, again, of uh, physicians and dietitians, she decided to do what, she's, what she calls the all-in journey. So this was an attempt to restore and kind of balance out and heal her metabolism. So what she did was Well, first of all, she couldn't really get full. Her satiety cues were kind of broken. So what she did was she decided she was going to eat a lot of food, restore her satiety cues, and then when she finally started really feeling fullness and understanding what fullness really means, because after you restrict yourself for so long, sometimes it can be confusing, I guess, to understand what fullness and what hunger really is for you. And so for a long time, what this looked like was eating about 5,000 calories. And this girl started out, she was tiny starting out. And she's not the first person to do this to heal her metabolism. There are many people before her who did this. And again, under the care of like doctors and dietitians. And it's worked for several, uh, several people. And it worked for her as well. So she ate a ton. For everybody who does this, I guess, they will gain weight. So for her, that was about 30 pounds of weight. But then what happened is after a couple weeks, she started to understand what being full actually felt like and restored her satiety. Then after months and months of it taking about 5,000 calories a day for her to get full, her metabolism started to heal and readjust back to a kind of set point. I'm not going to get into set point theory, but basically there's this theory that your body likes to stay at a certain size. Anyway, after months of that, her hunger started to decrease, so it would only take 4,000 calories, then 3,000 calories for her to get full. And now she's at, I think she's at like 2,500 or 2,800 or something a day. And she's very active, but I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Like she must have a pretty high metabolism, which would be really nice. That's one of the ways, by the way, that you can raise your metabolism. Again, this is not medical advice, just medical knowledge. One of the ways that people increase their metabolism is by eating more. Although that does often result in weight gain. But for some people, it will kind of heal their metabolism and they naturally will lose weight after a certain period of time. Which is, by the way, what happened to her. She didn't end up losing a lot of the 30 pounds that she gained, but not all of it because she never wanted to go back to being as thin as she originally was because it was unhealthy. So yeah, I guess a lot of the people who have done this before, they will gain weight initially and then over time they will then lose it and then restore themselves back to a healthy, comfortable weight. So yeah, I hope you guys found that really interesting. Go check out Stephanie Buttermore. She's also a PhD scientist, which is really cool. Go check her out on YouTube. I know that whole topic can be really triggering for people. So again, don't check her out if it's going to mess you up. But yeah, just the takeaway for this, you guys, is underfueling your body is not good. 
Okay, and with that interesting topic out of the way, let's get into the Q&A about epi and epi careers. I get a lot of questions on TikTok and on my email. If anybody doesn't know, my email is epicentralpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to email me at any time if you're looking for information about how to become an epidemiologist. A lot of people don't have access to an epidemiologist to ask questions to. I know for me, when I was a student, I only had my epi teacher. She was the only epidemiologist that I had access to that I knew. And she only had worked at a health department and she could only really speak to that. And so I had very little information to make my decision on, which made it a little bit scary and felt a little risky. And so if I can help give career information to students, then that's amazing. Obviously, none of these questions can be tracked to a specific person. Okay, and with those annoying disclaimers out of the way, let's get into the questions. So somebody said they're taking a gap year between undergrad and grad school. How can they get good experiences? So I would approach this the same way I would approach a normal job search. I like to think of in two ways. So there's the online job search and the offline job search. So the offline job search is using your network and people you already know to help get you an internship or a job. The best thing to do, I think, would be to make a meeting with your advisor, see if they have any opportunities. I would connect with professors that you have a good relationship with or who work in your area of interest, like your epi teacher, if you have one, and even talk to friends and colleagues and see, you know, like, hey, just mention you're looking for a job, you know, do you know of anything? And honestly, there is a labor shortage, so you might actually come across a job just by asking around. And then there's the online job search, which is where you're looking at LinkedIn and other job search search engines like Indeed or Google. And like I said in another episode, actually, in multiple episodes, this advice will be given, but it's all about your search terms. Are you searching the right thing? And that totally depends on what you want to do. Like, are you going to search data analyst? Or are you going to search public health communication specialist? There is no ideal experience to get between undergrad and grad school. It's just what is going to work for you? What's going to give you the money that you need? What's going to give you the lifestyle that you want to live? The much deserved break from school that you're having? Um, and then what's going to help inform your decision in what you want to do in public health? And of course, not everybody's going to snag their ideal public health job during this gap. But even doing work related to public health, but not directly public health, uh, might be very helpful, such as research or working out the or working in healthcare. And you guys, don't forget, you can try multiple things. So if you get a job as a researcher and you hate it and it's been five months, then maybe consider looking for a new job. This is not, you're exploring, this is not forever. Never feel bad about quitting a job. And I really don't think it's going, because that that short period of time, that year, two years, between undergrad and grad school is meant for exploration, I really don't think it's going to harm your chances of getting a job in the future. But that's just my opinion. Okay, next question. Do online MPH programs have the same quality as in-person ones? So, of course, like everything in Epi, that depends. If you didn't know, that is like a kind of like an inside joke among Epis. The answer to everything is it depends. 
which is true. So it depends. But in general, I do think the online programs are probably a lot better now than they were before COVID because a lot of programs didn't have an online option before, but probably do now. And because a lot of these programs were kind of forced to be online, I do think they're better quality. And everybody is just so much more used to it because of COVID. So it totally depends on the program. Some programs have better reputations than others. And it also depends on what you're trying to get out of your degree. Some people just want to get the knowledge or some people just want to get the letters. They don't even, maybe they've been working in public health and they kind of already know what they need to know. Other people like myself, because I was young, I was going straight from undergrad to grad school. I needed both the knowledge and the practical experiences and the connections. And so it was a big bummer when we went online. So in general, I would say if the online program has a lot of options that meet your needs, so if you were like me and you're like, I need connections, I need exploration and practical application, if the program has a lot of resources into those things that you need, then that's a good sign. But if the online program looks like it's a bunch of like, 50-year-old mid-career professionals who, like, are going to be working full-time through it and you're, like, 24 and you were like me, then maybe that's not the right program. And a related question, is working full-time during an MPH feasible? Again, that totally depends. The short answer is it definitely can be for a lot of people. I know of several people. I know directly many people who are full-time parents and full-time workers and are still getting their grad degree, which is wild. But people just have to prioritize their time. But yes, many people do do it, even with a family, even with a full-time job. My advice for this is to definitely reach out to the program and see if working full-time is appropriate or common in the program, because if it's really uncommon, in a competitive or high higher intensity program like Harvard or Johns Hopkins, then definitely just consider your decision. Also, some programs, on the other hand, are just more equipped to handle people who are working full-time and are even aimed for that. So they might have a asynchronous option for classes, which means that you can watch the lectures at any time during the week. You don't have to be watching them live at a specific time. This also means they're online lectures. And then some MPH programs, I'm sure, have night classes for people that are working like in person and then going to school at night. And then there are hybrid programs, which are a lot more common because of COVID. And then there are programs that are just less intense or more intense. So definitely talk to your program. That should, you should, if you are planning to work full-time, you should definitely talk to your program. Let them know that you are a full-time worker and a full-time student. Okay, next question. What was it like switching careers last minute? They were asking this because they decided to not go into a certain field and then to do research instead and wanted to know my experience with everything because I was also someone who switched careers last minute in college. So if you didn't know, I was going to become a physician assistant and then I decided last minute, I jumped ship with a lot of my classmates actually, that was very common, 
a lot of us jumped ship so fast at the very end of undergrad and we were like nope not going to med school not going to whatever school and then switch careers it was a little scary but also really good it felt risky or a little bit scary to me because again i only had one person my epi teacher that i knew who I could kind of gauge uh, what the career was about. And I had minored in public health and I'd worked in some internships. Uh, so I had the ex I had some experiences, but I didn't have experiences directly with epidemiology. I just really liked my epi class. And so I literally went into my MPH having very, very little knowledge on my career options as an epidemiologist. But on the other hand, I had really good support. My family was really supportive. I felt like nobody had really judged me that I could tell for switching. I mean, I'm sure a couple people did. Overall, I definitely made the right decision. So if you're like me and you just have the gut feeling, then maybe think about following your gut feeling because, I don't know, I believe in gut feelings and making that decision just felt right, even though it felt a little bit scary at the time. But overall, I, I made the right decision. I cannot imagine being a healthcare provider, especially during COVID. But my job is so much easier. I get to sit at home most of the time and just do epi from my bed. It's so relaxing. It's so nice. I mean, not that work is relaxing, but like it's nice to be able to do it at home. And it's nice that like I do get to go in a couple times a week or I have to go in at least once, but I can go in more, which I do sometimes. Get some social interaction there. I can get a little bit more work done. And I also will visit micro labs at uh, hospitals for my job, which is actually pretty fun. But I don't have to have that grueling, grinding, like nine to five in a hospital too. That would be a very exhausting setting. So I don't get paid as much as I would as a physician assistant, but I don't work anywhere nearly as hard as a PA does. And my risk of getting COVID is significantly less along with every other disease because I just sit at home so and another thing I want to say about this is it's pretty common I think I mean it was common at my school and I can imagine most other just regular regular colleges this has got to be pretty common so a lot of people were pre-med like let's say like 200 people were pre-med and then like at least like 25 30% of people just dropped off at the end. We're like, I'm not pre-med anymore. And I think this happens for a variety of reasons, but it's just that like pressure at the end that's like you kind of have to make a decision. I mean, you can take years and you can decide, take your whole life to decide what you want to do, but there's a special kind of pressure at the end of college to figure out what you're doing next. Since you will no longer be a full-time student, you got to make an income somehow or go into some kind of schooling again. And the idea of med school or PA school or whatever just becomes so real at that point. And you really have to critically think, is this something I actually want to do with my life? Is this really something I'm going to put myself through? And I never wanted to seem like I'm discouraging people from going into medicine because um, there is a doctor shortage and a nursing shortage. Like people really need to go into that field. Okay, let's get into the next question. How much free time did I have in my MPH program slash was it hard? I get this question all the time. And my response usually is I did not find it that difficult. And my life balance was really, really good as an MPH student. My life balance now is way better. But during college, I was so 
busy. I was always, I was in a sorority. I was a full-time student. I worked like 20 to 30 hours a week. And, you know, I was trying to maintain my social life. I was, I'm super social. So that's very important to me. And I was in like three or four clubs and I was the president of like one or two of them. It was hard. And I feel like I was at school. Some days I was at school for like 12 hours and I don't know, I was just always doing something. And then weekends were dedicated to working and studying and maybe some social stuff. Oh my God, it was stressful. But in my MPH program, I felt like I would just kind of like wake up, go to school, uh, work part-time, you know, during that week. I never worked weekends because I was working at a health department. Oh, actually, no, I did work weekends. That's a lie. I was working at the health department, but we would do calls from home on the weekends. But yeah. It was only for a couple hours, though, so it wasn't as bad because in undergrad, I was working a lot more on the weekends. And then on Sundays is when I would do a lot of my biostats homework, and I would usually do it with my friends. We would work together, and that was very, very helpful. And then, you know, I had some homework during the week on weekdays, but I feel like that maybe, maybe only added up to, like, maybe, like, five hours a week at most. But yeah, I just spent significantly less time on school and studying. The material was easier for me. Um, I studied biology in undergrad. I found it to be pretty difficult and most of my peers found it very difficult as well. And most of my peers in my MPH program, we went to a pretty competitive school by the way, and most of us did not find it to be that difficult. I mean, people who were trying to get straight A's struggled a lot more than I did because I just tried to get like A's and B's and I was fine. Like I even got not great grades on some of my tests like in biostats and I was fine. I still got to be in the class. So it also kind of depends, you know, what you're striving for. I could have gotten straight A's. That would have been perfectly attainable. I do have one friend who thought the MPH was harder than their undergrad degree but I can't speak to how hard their undergrad degree was. I don't know. Okay, next question. How much money do I make? And how do I, how, they're wondering how do they go about getting my degree? So I make around the average, I like to say for people going into government type of work, or just like most of public health work that's not in the private sector, then a lot of us in a average cost of living city, you can expect to get paid anywhere from 40 to 65K, maybe about 55K average a year. Um, that's things like health departments, research, academia, again, mainly in the not like for like not for profit type of sector. So public, nonprofit and universities, research organizations, etc. But if you're in a higher cost of living city, you can expect more than that, like more like 80K at a health department if you're in Boston or New York or LA. And then if you're in a lower cost of living area, then you might expect less. So I get paid in that range, of course, and I'm really hoping to make more money eventually. I might go into consulting in a couple years. I don't know. We'll see. But I like my job. I'm definitely staying at my job for another, at least another year, but probably two years um, and then I might move to Miami or LA. We'll see. And how did I go about getting my Master of Public Health degree? I've explained this many times. I don't think I want to explain it again, but basically you get an undergrad degree and 
you apply and you, you try to get experiences. You do the application system through what's called SOFAs. And this is like all in my How to Become an Epidemiologist series. And yeah, you apply and then you get in. It's actually very simple. Sometimes you have to take the GRE, which is an entrance exam for grad school, but a lot of schools are not requiring that anymore. So the requirements aren't as strenuous, I guess, as like med school or some other, like maybe like law school. Okay, and last question to end off this episode. What experience did I have to help me get a job? So I think they're referring to the job after my, like my full-time epidemiologist job after my MPH. My first like direct, like applied epi public health experience was my job when I was a student getting my MPH. So I was in grad school and then I think October of my first semester, I applied to like so many jobs in the fall. October, I got an interview and got accepted to be basically like an epi assistant at my state health department. That was the best experience I could have gotten. That's really what made me want to go into applied epi. Entering the program, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I probably didn't want to do research. I probably wanted to work in infectious disease. I had an inkling toward applied epi. I thought I wanted to work at CDC probably, but you know, that I ended up not caring to work at CDC anymore. And to this day, I'm like, I do not care to work there, maybe in the future, but right now I have no desire. And yeah, so that was a very classic applied epi job. The job is so similar to what I do now that it was like the perfect experience. So if you want to do applied epi, like I do type of like health department work, then then obviously working at a health department is really, really good experience. And I think that was the main reason why I was able to get this job. It also helped at my place of employment and also at the health department as well. Um, most people who worked there as EPIs went to the same exact program I did. My program, again, was like a pretty competitive, like high, very highly ranked MPH program. And so a lot of companies and organizations in public health do kind of recruit directly from my school, and that helped a lot. Definitely not required to go to a competitive or highly ranked program. That's not at all required. In fact, I'm so jealous. I have a coworker who went to a um, school in the same city as we both live in. He didn't even have to pay tuition because he got a TA ship, and my school did not offer TA ships because they're money hungry, love private, love capitalism. And uh, so he has like zero debt from grad school, I'm pretty sure. And I have like a hundred K debt. That is like that is like 10 years difference in paying off debt between him and I, and we have the same job. So really consider your choices. I don't regret, I mean, I haven't paid off my loans yet, so kind of hard to say, but so far I don't regret going to the school I went to, but I do wish like I would have had better options. The issue with me was that I'm from Kansas and I knew I kind of needed to move states in order to get my degree. Like that kind of, that really wasn't very much of an option. The only school really that I had access to was KU, uh, University of Kansas, 
everybody in the picture was like 50 like everybody in the like cohort picture was kind of older and I was like 21 so I was like that's not the vibe like I'm not gonna have fun or get the experiences that I want plus in Kansas there are very little opportunities like I would have had to work at a health department and I would have had very little options outside of that which I loved working at the health department but I didn't know that's what I wanted to do exactly and so I would have had little um, little room for exploration. And so I kind of had to leave my state. I found it to be harder to understand what kind of opportunities and TA ships and graduate assistantships there are available to pay my tuition at a different school when I was out of state. I could have worked harder to find these, but as an out-of-state person, I do think it can be harder to find these options because for example, my coworker who went to that public school, he also went there for undergrad. And so it's like you can make connections and kind of hear and like you can meet students who are doing that. You can kind of like hear about it and you're more in that environment versus like if you have to switch schools and you don't even know anybody at these schools you're looking at, it can be a little bit harder. OK, that ripple was very unnecessary, but I do think that is a really good point like some schools are really good some expensive schools are really good because they have like really strong recruitment pipelines I guess but then other schools you're not gonna have any student loan debt so you know there are trade-offs but that was the last question and thank you all so much for listening to my rambles and information about epidemiology again feel free to please contact me via email at epicentralpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to ask me questions about epidemiology. If you're a student, if you're interested in this career, you want more information, I'm so happy to chat with you. If you have any requests for my content on TikTok or on this podcast, please, please give feedback, give requests, reach out to me. I get several emails a week. It's amazing and I love it. And I hope everybody has an amazing week. Bye!